Hello everyone, I'm Lee Lewis, the Artistic Director here at Queensland Theatre. Thank you for joining us for another Quality Time podcast. We are having this conversation today on the lands of the Yuggera and the Turrbal people. Stories have been told on these lands for tens of thousands of years and every day when I walk in here I feel incredibly privileged to be part of a generation that are laying down new stories on these lands. Look, we haven't told stories together with our First Nations people well in the history of this country, so what we're hoping to build is new legacy and new stories that bring us together in better ways. That's one of the big goals. And I hope when people listen to this podcast 200 years from now that that we're in a much better place than we have been in the last 200 years. So on that note, I'd like to welcome two people to be in conversation with me today, two of my colleagues, peers, friends in the theatre community of Brisbane who've been very welcoming in the last couple of years as I've found my way into what it is to make make story in, in Queensland. Zoha Spatz, who's coming over from La Boite, and Joe Thomas, who's Metro Arts. Now, that's a very informal introduction to, to two extraordinary theatre creators, leaders in this city. I'm going to let them introduce themselves as well um, and tell me a little bit about what they do. You, you probably have read their names uh, in various places. You've run into them in foyers, but I don't know that you necessarily know the, the, the reach and the voice of these two people. And so that's really the starting point for, for what this is. We're thinking about who I was thinking about who I wanted to be in conversation with, and I was like, "Yeah, I want to talk to you guys because I feel like our work talks to each other through what we try to do to audience." So I wanted to give our audiences the chance to hear us talking a bit, put a, a voice, if not a face, on on the relationship that actually is quite formative yeah. for the city. Yeah, great. So hi. Hi. <laughs> you go first, Soha. Okay. Give me a little bit of an overview. Where are you at at the moment? Sure. Well, hello, everyone. I would also like to just acknowledge that we are gathered here chatting to you, but I also live on the lands of the Yagara and the Turrbal peoples. I raise my children here and I feel very privileged to have been here for 10 years in Brisbane. And I am the executive director over at La Boite. I've been there since 2019. I think I had like maybe nine months at the chair before COVID struck. So it's getting on to three years and it's been a pretty wild ride, a bit of a rodeo. And I'm really looking forward to stepping into 2022. I have no idea where we will end up, but I step into it with a place of optimism and hope. And I think that's probably how I operate at La Boite as well. From a totally personal level, I studied theatre at university. I was a total theatre nerd at high school. I had a remarkable high school teacher in year 11 who kind of told me that it was possible to find you know, a career in the arts. I had really supportive parents who probably never expected me, unlike some of my other friends, to become a doctor or a lawyer and were like, yep, go, go be in art. And I've never not worked in this industry. I've been working in the arts since I was 20. I'm 40. And I just kind of operate from a place, this probably a little too deep for this podcast at this early stage, but I think that art can be pretty transformational. And it can make people feel like they belong. And I'm really proud of the stuff that we try and do at La Boite. And I'm really proud of the sector here and the art that gets created in the city. And it's really wonderful to feel like you're a custodian for a short period of time, however long that is. However long it is, yeah. 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 
Yeah. Yeah. So that's my introduction. That's a beautiful introduction. (laughs) I found that quite inspiring. Oh, well. (laughs) It's always nice to hear the background, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, I'm Jo Thomas. Hello, everyone. And acknowledge the Turbal and the Yagra people and particularly the ancestors and the elders. And I think the young, young ones who are coming through to help us build a much brighter future. I am the CEO and the Artistic Director at Metro Arts, so a dual hat. I'm actually up to long service leave oh at Metro goodness. Arts. Oh, my Can you believe oh, congratulations. that? No one gets that in the arts. That's so great. that's a real privilege because I've never had a job that long. It hasn't always been in this position. I've been CEO and AD for about five years. And I come from a pretty mixed background of being mostly a performer. I did my first performance as a six-year-old. I played a leprechaun. Oh, that's Uh, cute. Yes. Yes, because I am very short still. Um, (laughs) So I've been acting most of my life, um, did film, TV, Uh, theatre, sort of travelled around a bit and landed in Brisbane for what was meant to be a short time because my sisters are up this way and they just kept having babies. (laughs) And Auntie Jo had to come and meet the children. And now I've been here, gosh, over 20 years and have moved through performance and into producing my own work and other people's work and executive producing and had a real, really great role working with a number of indie artists on something called Maps for Artists, Managing and Producing Service. And that was a really beautiful role working with artists who are still around today, you know, Dead Puppets and Polytoxic and Brian Lucas, to name but a few, and have sort of progressed through festivals. And yeah, here I am. Yeah. I love Maps. Maps was a great initiative. Yeah. yeah. I think I caught the tail end because I came up for a job at the Powerhouse. That's right. To produce World Theatre Festival and a few other projects. And Maps was sort of kind of you could see the result of it mm. and the independent scene it was before state funding was cut and there was this like feeling of possibility mm. <laughs> it was 2011 just after the floods yeah and the independent sector was like yeah. it was flying full of energy and it was quite exciting to be mm. here and it was such a simple concept it was just if we give artists, a producer, will they make more work? Will they make better work? Will that work have a longer life? And it was yes, yes, and yes. Yeah. And let's support the artists to make the work, kind of what we all do in different ways. But in that indie sector, it was quite new for Australia back then. It was great. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting talking about the sector. When people use the word ecosystem, my brain goes to you two people mm-hmm. <laughs> in collaboration with mm-hmm. with Queensland Theatre as well. That between the between the three spaces, that's I suppose the, a map, not using that word, but a map yeah. of artistic venues places you're most likely to see Brisbane artists, Brisbane work. And then you add QPAC into that. And that's probably one of the biggest channels for work coming from outside of the state. So between those spaces, that would be the most conventional spaces, if you like, as opposed to the the little nooks and crannies that artists will inhabit in all sorts of places. So those artists will find their way towards us in different ways. And we look out for them in different ways and then sort of lead them towards different audiences. And that's really, I suppose, the producing producing role is how do you match up artists with audiences? Mm. And it's an interesting thing being ecosystem for artists, what that is. It's been really rough the last couple of years. 
being new to Brisbane in those two years, hearing about the work of artists but not being able to see it has been a fascinating way in. Mm-hmm. I'm now, as artists are starting to make work again this year, starting to see works. Got to see Dead Puppets the other night with their Wider Earth revival, the new yeah. the new tour of that starting. And to get to see a signature work of artists, people have been telling me about Wider Earth for two, two years. So to finally get to see it is a great thing because you go, oh yeah, that's where you're coming from. I get it. Yeah. That's why people are so in love with you. Mm-hmm. as artists because yeah. of what you gave them yeah. and it's been a really interesting way in for me to get to know the people before their art because mm. normally you find your way to artists through a piece that you've seen yeah mm. for sure yeah you had such a rough start here didn't you like coming oh, in it, at that time oh look everyone around the world has had a rough couple of years yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, it's weird looking back and trying to remember what that was yeah you know why did you do this oh god okay so april may of 2020 where were we what were we doing right yeah. We were doing little lunches. We were doing <laughs> online chats, <laughs> talking about, you know, a situation I think that we thought would blow over much faster. Much faster, mm-hmm. yeah. 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 And trying to really understand this strange concept of a worldwide pandemic. Yeah. I remember being just recently, we were speaking to someone about it. So in February 2020, I was at APAM. I don't think, I don't know who else was there, but mm. it was in Melbourne and a couple of the Chinese and Asian delegates just weren't able to come and we knew about COVID and we, you know, we were talking, but we weren't talking about it at all. Like the, the delegation of national presenters and artists, just we spent the five days kind of talking about the model in which we operated in already, which is buy, sell, present work, network, <laughs> instead of talking about the like imminent discovery that we were all about to lose capacity to travel and I just kind of think back, you would never know like how we could have changed the conversation. What could that have looked mm-hmm. like? But I think for me, what's really interesting is the transition that COVID has created in not just leadership, which I know we're going to talk a little bit about, but thinking about the ecosystem that you spoke of, not just locally, but nationally and of course, internationally. I think what's occurred is that over the last two years, everything that was kind of a bit broken or all of the gaps, all of the the lack of homogeneity, if that's even a word, but like the kind of interconnection of how the ecology works. If something was a little bit broken, it's kind of come to the surface. And if people aren't responding to it right now and trying to rebuild and trying to find a way forward, I think it's going to be a real struggle this year like yeah. if we don't kind of step into a space where we're a bit uncomfortable because we're all trying something a bit different. Yeah. It but, is all a bit different, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Because we've been in it long enough now. That thing, if something's changed for three years, then it's changed beyond recognition in a weird way. Like it becomes embedded as difference and you kind of there is no going back Yeah, effectively. It's got to be building from new. And I, don't, and I don't think any of it is bad. Like, mm-hmm. I just think there's huge opportunity in kind of talking about how we support the ecology differently, centering artists differently in a genuine way or whatever it looks like for us in Brisbane, but nationally mm-hmm. and internationally. What's really exciting, I think, is the blueprint can be slightly adjusted. Yeah. <laughs> I think I agree with you in some ways. Like, it is great opportunity, but I can also see some models disappearing that were working Absolutely and I'm agree. really mourning their loss. Yeah. Particularly, I feel like we'd had 
some really lovely touring mechanisms yes. set up in Queensland in particular and people who worked really hard over many years to do that work. And it's curious now to go, well, what are we going to do next? That's what right. does it look like? Will the creation of work, the touring of work change so radically mm. that we're not going to even recognise those old models? Yeah. So I think that is exciting yeah. and it is an opportunity I just don't know what it is yet. That's and that's the <laughs> that's the kind of fear and mm. the uncomfortability. I guess mm. is like I don't. I think I said before. Like I started this year and I have zero idea on how it will end. <laughs> like, but but also we're kind of not as panicked by that. Yeah, as I'm we just used not to be. buying a twenty two diary from. You know, <laughs> like, no, I'm not. I'm not buying one of those written. I've got like notepads, but I'm not buying a diary. <laughs> I'm like this is bad idea. <laughs> I've got some beautiful notepads instead. Just nothing with a date beside Fair. it. Fair enough. <laughs> just leaning into the unknown. Yeah, leaning into the unknown. Look. It's a really interesting phrase, combining something, saying something in a phrase that you wouldn't have even known mm. to make back in 2019, you know, leaning into the unknown. I suppose what, one of the reasons for having this conversation was to talk about that, that word leadership, because we fling it about a lot, especially going into an election, mm. questions mm. about that politically in Australia. And then functionally, you find yourself in that position of having to lead, right? Life leads you towards that. And someone asked me a question the other other day, did you always intend to be a leader? And I just went, yes. And of course I didn't, but I always found myself in a group of kids mm. at every age being willing to speak, mm. being willing to say, well, I think this, and maybe that's where leadership starts, especially if you have support in doing that, if you have good teachers, if you have parents that actually encourage that. But then there comes a point where you apply for a job and you know it's a leadership position. Mm. It will be asked of you. But then you kind of go, that funny thing of what does leadership feel like? What is it? And especially in, in really complex times, the pressure of that. I find myself having to make all sorts of lots of little speeches. That's the practicality of, of mm. leadership. What about you guys? What, is it, what does it actually mean on a day-to-day basis for you? That pressure, the function of it, like what does it look like mm. for you? I think the naive version of me in 2017 or 2018 desperately wanted to be in a leadership position. And now I reflect on the last five (laughs) years and I wouldn't be too sad about uh, sharing leadership. (laughs) Uh, I think it means a lot and it's a huge responsibility and... Um, Not only are you caring for an organisation, you're caring for people. And that that has been my biggest learning, my biggest challenge, the things that keep me up at night, my biggest failures, my biggest wins, people. People, Um, Whether or not a budget comes through or I've hit my KPIs and I've got great relationships with my funders and all that sort of stuff, yep, cool, you know, in that CEO mindset that's that's not leadership for me. That's administration and critical, but like leadership for me is managing and supporting people and it is the most rewarding and painful part of what it means to be a leader for me, I think. Mm. You have great wins and some great failures all in the same 24 hours. <laughs> it's a roller coaster. I'd agree with that. I think it's... Having that door open, like I spend a lot of time observing my team and listening and watching closely, but also they come to me and you 
do, I think particularly in the last few years, with younger artists and arts workers, you, you spend a lot of time talking to them and trying to help them through. And I don't think one of my producers would mind me saying this. She came to me late last year and went, Joe, when's it going to start getting easy? I'm like, oh... I really feel for this generation coming up because you're being handed a huge pile of problems that are getting bigger and bigger by the day. And whether we talk about pandemics or the environmental issues, political issues, really trying to find treaty and some kind of forgiveness across different cultures and nations, like there's a lot of big issues that are coming through. And for me, it's trying to do the best I can in a small way to contribute to any of that. And the one thing I I learned a few years ago, I went and did my master's at NIDA in this curious thing called cultural leadership. And we were the first cohort and partway through, I'm like, should I be doing this? Like, I'm a white woman and, you know, is my voice important? I don't know anymore. And I came to the place where I went, I'm, I try to be aware and I try to help and be as conscious as I can of as many issues as possible. And I will just do my little bit to the best of my ability and hopefully leave a better space for the next ones coming through. And whether that's the artists or the audiences or, you know, our next leaders, whatever that might look like. Yeah. But I find it lonely sometimes too. Sure. Mm. Yeah, there are not a lot of people that you can, inside your organisation, that you can lean on. And then there are only a handful of people that actually have the same kind of pressures where you can go, ah. (laughs) Because again, it's that funny thing, isn't it? You can't really complain about it because it's a a goal. It's held up as a goal. And it's what people aspire to and want Mm. to do. And there are so few opportunities to actually do it. Mm. That's so true. But it's only once you have that position that you realise the extraordinary responsibility and the weight. Mm-hmm. And then it feels like you're complaining about something which you wanted and you're going to go, hang on. Yeah. Well, there's no playbook, is there? It's no. like I remember stepping into my role at Le Bois and going, where's... And the person previous to me left me this really impressive, like, handbook, like, you know, with all the details and everything, but there's no playbook. Like, there's no... <laughs> you just have to throw yourself in and navigate your way through all of that other. Like, and if that- <laughs> you've got the codes, you've got the passwords, you've got the timing of when you need to put in that report. you got the passwords? Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, I may not have been keeping them up to it, but a lot of things still say 2020 at the end of them. But yeah. like I, you know, I think, yeah, as you say, there aren't too many people to call. And to be honest, like I find myself often, I don't have much of a filter I definitely overshare because I have to. Like, I, that's my process of thinking, and vulnerability is really important. And role modeling and seeing seeing other people operate really helps me know how I can. But I also often think to myself, well, if something down the line has kind of fallen apart, there's obviously something I've done at the top. Because as someone who's been in the middle so often who espoused going, oh, so toxic up the top, blah, 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 (laughs) you kind of, you watch these moments sort of happen where the communication breaks down or where people slowly feel unsupported and you have to take a minute and do some reflection to go, okay, well, what was my part in and so what can I do? So this is constant. Mm. 
questioning of your own, I mean, for me anyway, I constantly question my leadership. Yeah. And mm. that in itself is, that's challenging. And I often think to myself, God, I wish I could be without being gendered about it. <laughs> I wish I could just be that, you know, the person in that suit who just seemingly does not care and just makes these like a grand kind of storms in, doesn't listen, makes a statement, walks out. I'm like, they are so unaffected. But, but, uh, it's an interesting as you're talking about the, the, the position of vulnerability in leadership yeah. and leadership and questions we're living in a time when people are questioning the idea of leadership a lot. What Absolutely. is it? And I don't think that same conversation was there 20 years ago. So it feels like the the suit and the statement model yeah. or mode is becoming less and less accepted as a way of forging ahead. For sure. And, and there's a lot more power in the structures of organisations now for people to question that mm. and not necessarily accept that as the sum total. I mean, I have that envy too. And whenever <laughs> I'm feeling weakest, I kind of, I wander through a shop and I'll look at a jacket and I'll go, that jacket will solve everything. Yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. I'm the same with online shopping. I may or may not have dropped a bundle the other day. I was like, I'm just going to buy some new clothes. It's the heels. <laughs> oh, the heel, yeah, the, yeah, you, you're good with shoes. They give us give me the height too, yeah. because actually there is something in that. We've been doing some diversity training, and you know, shorter people, women, are actually less trustworthy than taller people, men, and it's oh they are gendered biases that yeah. are so prevalent, and that we were trained in. Yes. We're still of the generation that was trained that uh, that's what success and strength mm. and trust mm. looked yeah. like. And drop your voice. Drop your voice. All don't of be those, shrill. Yes. Stay yeah. calm. Well, don't, don't be too cry. emotional. I mean, don't mm. cry. All yeah. of those things which we yeah. got at school and the models were held up if you want to succeed, that's the path to follow, which actually are physically and emotionally and, you know, mm. spiritually impossible. <laughs> but but we've got internal biases that we're Absolutely. trying to fight against for ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. And how dare you not smile in a photograph? I know, oh, right? Heaven forbid. Heaven forbid. But we are. We're well, fighting all of those platforms and processes and patriarchal systems yes. that are embedded while well, sometimes say, still liking shoes. Yeah. Well, of course. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you were talking about what will it be like for this next generation and what I find really interesting, which you just touched on, is like we're actually not just living through COVID. We're living through a period of time where there's significant structural change. Mm. Identity politics mm. is, is super important. Equity, justice, all of these really elemental changes that are going to completely transform what this sector looks like and empathy and vulnerability are going to be deeply important in ensuring that that change happens. And, and there's definitely no playbook for that. No, there's not. There is no script that we're inheriting for how to be accessible, empathetic. The vocabulary around that is actually being invented as we go along mm. with an instinct that says that this is important. Mm. Yeah. And that, yeah. But how do you also do that whilst protecting yourself a little bit? And how do you instill confidence in others? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, again, and resilience. Yeah. yeah, strength is necessary mm. because people do need, like that thing, you are in a position of people to look to you to, yes, be vulnerable and acknowledge that your humanity in that space, but also make a decision. Yes. And they need confidence. And when you've got a lot of people, it's been interesting being in, in conversations with government where organizations like ours are looking to me, well, we need confidence. And I'm like, it's just like people looking at me and going, we need confidence. Like, I don't know where I'm going to find it. I don't know. 
I just, just say it, it may be in my cast. I'm just going to pop out for a second. <laughs> my confidence. <laughs> Drive home. Take a new jacket. I'm going to buy the new jacket. I'm, yeah. I'm going to do all those things. So, yeah, you're finding these things are like I can put on the picture of confidence, but that's stepping back into other things that I know don't necessarily yeah. work or won't. I don't necessarily have confidence that those tools will work in the same way. And so it is a fascinating time of evolving all of that at the same time as being in, a, in this COVID crisis. Yeah, for sure. How have you found your decision-making to be over the past two years? Hit and miss, honestly. But things have changed so much. I've also learned that make a decision on the day, keep a track of the information that you had on the day, and don't try and second-guess yourself. I look back and I go, oh, knowing what I know now, I would have made a different choice, but I didn't know that then. Mm. So forgiving myself. Mm. Yeah. And I also, I, I actually kind of secretly look at Alan Joyce a lot, speaking as someone who I feel like has done mm. a really great job. And then when he kind of realized, he made the same thing of assuming the top of this year, we'd be back to normal. He yeah. said all those targets are back to normal and then is out between 10 and 20%. And yeah. I kind of go at my Alan Joyce meter. I'm like, if I'm track it, like, tracking at the same thing of like 10 to 20% yeah. off, then I'm like, good. That's okay. That's yeah. okay. <laughs> Do you think there's something in acknowledging that through all of this, we are human and so it's like any relationship, communication is critical, but also just admitting when you made a mistake and trying to ensure that the community of people that you have around you, the sector around you understands that you will make a mistake. So it's about the process of what you do to dust yourself off and start again and what are those learnings. And mm -hmm. I read this thing recently, which was the biggest tool for leaders moving into 2022 will be empathy. And it's something you can't train people in. You can't teach someone innately how to be empathetic. And the other thing oh. is ethical leadership. Like three, four years ago, I was all about values-based leadership and I still am being really clear about where my centre points are. And as a team, when I started at Lavoie, I spent a lot of time working with the team who were there at the time and we articulated a set of values for ourselves as individuals and a collective. It wasn't, it's not in our strat plan, but it's something we reference all the time. Now I think a lot about ethical leadership and what does that mean? And I think it all still comes back to vulnerability, honesty, acknowledging when you've made a mistake, resetting, whether or not people have patience for that, whether or not the people that you serve will allow you to be visibly making mistakes and learning as a leader. I think that's a very dynamic and different space to play in. I think if we're even more visible as leaders making mistakes, failing mm -hmm. and, dust and, and resetting, I'm not sure how visible that was 10 years ago. It's very different from that superstar artistic director or superstar leader that we used to have, that yeah. model, usually men, but they were the superstar and no one would question them or challenge them. And it's very different now. Yeah. I think it's really admirable to be able to show that vulnerability and it's, it's certainly challenging and we don't see a lot of it from our politicians, for example, you know, saying sorry seems to be the hardest word and, and admitting mistakes. So I, I do admire leaders when I see them actually own up and try to do better. We're all trying to do better. Yeah, yeah. yeah we are. It's interesting that question about how do you help people develop empathy and I look at government cuts in education, mm. the arts in education, and I kind of go, where do you think we learn how to do this? Articulate what it is that we're feeling inside, communicate it to someone else, and listen. Like those tools, if you're not playing in the arts space, mm. that gap is going to just get 
bigger and bigger. And I look at those cuts and I go, no. Yeah, it's disturbing. Yeah, that, that question of what governmentally decisions about taking tools away from people. It's a hard thing to add later. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. Yeah, it's usually only massive trauma that actually will create change in people later if you don't get in early. Mm. Yes, I do believe people can change, but I think it's usually a traumatic process. Mm, for sure. But I think you can lay down patterns and pathways early on if you value them. Mm. That's something that sits in the back of my head of of a fight <laughs> that yeah. we need to be up for to or fight, yeah, fight conversation. I don't know, I'm running out of my words around there, what that will be yeah. in the next period of time to make sure we don't create bigger obstacles for this these younger artists, these yeah. this younger generation. I desperately need it. Like right now I think there could be nothing more uplifting than for our sector to be valued. And yes. we've not just been going through a pretty intense period of time. But right before COVID hit, 37% of small to medium organisations got defunded or got funded out of the pool. So the support towards the work that we do has slowly been eradicated. And that leaves an imprint to like mm. constantly be fighting the fight. I look at our incredible colleagues at LPA and I watch the advocacy that they have yeah. been doing and I it's think, massive. oh, my God, that's all put money in to take Evelyn Richardson on a holiday. <laughs> like that woman, <laughs> you know, like yeah. uh, she's remarkable. Like I look at our leaders that are in that space and at that table who are really trying to advocate so hard for a government that seemingly doesn't value the work that we do. But at the same time, I don't necessarily think it's politic. I really hope for this next gen and also us as current leaders over the next period of time as we look towards the future, as we look towards the next five to 10 years. In Brisbane, we're talking about 2032 because yep. of the Olympics. So we are yep. thinking about 10 years time mm. that there is an investment in arts education. There is an investment and an acknowledgement of the remarkable social impact art can have on a community, on a young person, on our audiences, and most importantly, on this city. Like, this city could be remarkable and is already yeah. remarkable. And it's also interesting thinking about that Olympic deadline, mm. if you like, but that five years after, mm. if we're using the Olympics to get to something that's beyond right. for this city, for this state, that becomes really interesting to me. Yeah, when great. it all packs up and goes away, what are we left with? Mm. And that we've got to be pushing through that Olympics, that's using right. the Olympics for our future artists, essentially. Yeah. yeah. The legacy piece is crucial. We need to be starting it now. Now. Yeah. Because it is that long. So it, resisting the 10-year resisting yes. the 10-year deadline and actually yeah. going 20. the 20. Yeah. Yeah. What is where does the 10 get us to for 20 years? There's this amazing land management company based in um, New Zealand that's 100% Maori run. So it's all of the traditional custodians within this area of land in the South Island. And I met someone who sits on their board and is part of the organisation in Malaysia a few years ago when you could travel. And he was telling me that actually that they create their strategic plan, their operational plan, and it's a 100-year plan mm. because in the lens of that community, they want to discuss what it will be left for their children's children's children. So they won't be here and their children won't be here, but the legacy for their grandchildren's children. And I found that to be so inspirational 
because you do, you need to think about the immediate, but like to have that big blue sky kind of construct around when you're not here. Mm. Yeah. So you remove yourself out out Mm. of it Mm -hmm. and then you're left with something quite special. Yeah. Okay. So the hundred year plan. Mm. <laughs> Let's do it. A hundred year plan. Yes. But again, that speaks to the scale, Joe, that you were talking about that artists are looking at, that it's getting harder. And when you go, okay, what is the hundred year plan? And we need to be encouraging that inspirational thinking, those big ideas. I was talking about this last night, but it was something I heard discussed the other day that Australians aren't really ideas people, that they, they like to see experience. Who said that? Oh, it was on a radio um, discussion, but it was really yeah. interesting in terms of they like to see experience, they like to see something concrete to be confident that it's going to achieve. Well, some kind of radical idea can be quite frightening. And then, of course, you know, me being me went, well, if I put that in the context of contemporary art, new work, you know, how do we encourage audiences to come with us on that journey, this new idea, this new piece, something that might be really out there? Mm -hmm. But I think for me, that's a mission. I was like, I really want all of us to be ideas people and to embrace the uncertainty, the leaning into the unknown which leads us to a better place, I think. Yeah. Now think of curiosity. Mm. Curiosity is a great gear to have when it comes to the idea of unknown and new. Mm. And whenever we're in the new writing space, when it comes out, oh, new works are so hard, I go, films are all new new plays, essentially. Mm. TV's all new. Mm. I mean, yes, they can be familiar things, but the writing is always new. Mm. And you get, but we're not afraid of it in that space. Mm. We go towards it. So what is, what we have that capacity curiosity, courage, something about not knowing how something's going to end. Yeah. And an excitement, a movement towards that as opposed to moving away. Mm. And that's part of our job in pushing art form, I think, to really pushing artists' careers and even the, you know, the movement of companies and the whole sector, like where we might be able to take it. Yeah. That's exciting. It is exciting. It's interesting thinking about the shapes of obstacles. There's a word that gets flung around, especially around women, is glass ceiling. Mm-hmm. And I guess I had questions for you about what that feels like, if you still actually think that's a functional picture or if that's something that we need to... That's functional. It's functional, yeah. I actually, I've been liking the glass cliff more. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So this was that concept that a couple of academics females in the UK came up with in the early 2000s. And that one resonates for me, that often when something's risky, challenging, it might fail, the women get their shot to go for it. And for me, I sort of got a shot by accident at Metro Arts to step into this role. and But it was finding the courage to go, no, I can do this. And then educating myself and getting myself through it. But in the background, there was a a female board member who backed me to the hilt. And I don't think I would have been able to get through without that support. And I've seen a lot of that evidence of these kind of glass cliffs, I think. (laughs) I mean, I suppose the evidence of that is you you say the phrase and people just have a bit of a laugh Mm. because it feels very familiar. Yeah. Yeah. And that weird self-undermining doubt that you got it by accident or only because no one else wanted it this time because yeah. it's really hard. I think the phrase used to be poison chalice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think there's also just a, if you get a seat at the table, do not remove yourself from that seat. You stay on, you hook in and you 
earned it. You know, the amount of people that I know who question whether or not and why that ultimately I think the glass ceiling is there, but I think women have just gone on with it and built another room right beside it. And whilst maybe they don't get as high, they've just gone, I don't need to deal like that circumstance where I have to fight through this patriarchy and crash through something. And in the end, actually, what I'm going to do is cultivate a space here with my peers that makes me feel supported. Mm. And so what I'm finding is that people are redefining that space for themselves and placing them over in that corner. Also, in my experience of leadership, like I'm a single mom, I've got two children, they're both under seven. I struggle with that balance all the time. I don't regret being in a leadership position of this kind at this point in my life, but would I do it again right now? Probably not. You know, when your daughter turns around and says to you, mum, you love your work more than you love me, which she did last year, my heart broke. You know, you know, you run a small to medium theatre company, you run a company, you are working. Like that is in between making dinner and trying to pay attention, you're also on your phone and sending an email and asking people for favours. Like, you know, I, I think I'm also really passionate now about reframing what leadership looks like and that kind of systemic style of leadership that we've inherited and is expected of us. I leave the office two days a week at four o'clock to pick up my kids. Mm. Yeah. And I let everybody know I'm leaving. I'm not going to yeah. skulk out. Yeah. But yeah. I don't think everyone gets to experience that role model. No. Behave. Like I think people still, some women probably not in the art sector, don't necessarily get a chance to watch the bosses of companies step out for a few hours to go and do a thing. And we have to redefine what leadership looks like and we have to role model the version that works for us because mm. it is not cookie cutter. It is not. Yeah. Yeah, maybe you always have to do the 80-hour week, but 80 hours looks different for different types of people. Yeah, and it's the support I think that women need that is different to men and we have to face that. Whether it's having a child, whether it's menopause or having terrible periods every month, whatever it might be, being in a a supportive role of ageing parents. That's right. There's so many different balls that women are juggling and we need to try and set up new systems to support that. It's been interesting being in, this is my second company now, heading up a second company where the, I've had a, a female partner mm. in the executive position to sort of set possibilities for the company and so far as what's possible to work. You know, it was interesting working with Karen Rogers at Griffin, her saying, I've got two teenage daughters, I, I need to work from home one day a week. I'm like, yeah, okay, sure, we can make that work. There's no reason it can't be if you if you put the person above the position. That's right. As opposed to that person having to fit into the, the requirements of that position. And it was just interesting for both of us to go, oh, well, we can do that. Again, as opposed to following a playbook, which we've inherited for what it actually looks like. Of course we can work around it. There's not a lot that we can't work around. Being in a rehearsal room with great actors, be they male or female, who need to bring their kids into the rehearsal room. Mm. Yeah, 
of course it's okay. There's a couple of tricky moments in the play. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, how do you explain that mum's up a stripper pole? Yeah. You know. I guess. Well, you let the kid play on the pole. But as well, yes, you do. Exactly, you, you do. And you go, it's actually gymnastically yeah, really hard. Yeah. Um, but, but again, that funny thing of the relief that you see on people's faces when you say, yeah, of course we can work around that. Yeah. As opposed to, if I tell you this, I may well lose the job. That fear that actually the strange shape of life doesn't fit with the boxed-in shape of what work is supposed to look like. Mm. Yeah. And that's interesting working through it. And I really appreciate what you just said, Joe, because I'm in a particular stage of my life, but actually there are these milestone moments in our lives and being a carer or, you know, our bodies or whatever it looks like, like that whether it's a parent or a sibling or whatever your set of circumstances are, having the ability to be flexible and empathetic Mm. towards the person Mm. and knowing, you know, like I love these articles at the moment that are coming around, work from home, how it's changing, you know, workplace (laughs) cultures. It's like, oh my God, two days a week, someone's just sitting at their computer with a cup of tea and their Ugg boots on. Like it's cool, (laughs) you know, but I think also my awareness now, because this is the first time I've run a theatre company and watching mm. the previous AD step away from their desk and enter the like sacred space of the rehearsal room and disappear into that w- world for five weeks and then them stepping back upstairs into their desk. Like there is work interruption. Like ultimately a hybrid model of roles and our responsibilities mean that we've always needed to kind of not be in a traditional mindset. Mm. And I love the idea, and that maybe this is what I meant earlier about the unknown, the, the possibility of changing structures is hybrid, whatever that looks like. Like that is what we're giving ourselves permission, actually. <laughs> this is a really bad analogy, but I was reading an article reviewing the new electric Harley Davidson. Oh my God. Right. An electric Harley. There is. Oh, wow. There is. Imagine and what the like stalwart Harley driver <laughs> yeah, think. This is what it's Whoa. this is what it's like. Like a Harley Davidson with no sound. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, what that actually is. And it was a really interesting point of view from the reviewer saying, if you bought it wanting what it was, Mm -hmm. then you're going to be disappointed. But if this is all you've known, then there are some really good things about this unit. So it was a real, just an interesting thing in that question of how big things are changing and can change and will change. doesn't mean the other will disappear, Mm. but actually there are new things which will be much more appealing to to some people. And that number is going to grow. Yeah. So the more people that are coming into organizations that have a flexibility, that have a conversation, as opposed to a handbook about how things must be done, Yeah. the more people that have that experience, the more confidence they have in actually building themselves into an organization, as opposed to having to leave that at home. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's going to be just like home at work. There's just too much work in a day that's got to be got through. And we're working in a place that's not necessarily always personal. But it is interesting thinking about, again, the 20-year. Yeah. What do we think it looks like 20 years from now? Where are we working towards? And I go, that's that's interesting to me. We might not be able to picture the whole thing. And certainly, like COVID's taught us, I can't picture, Mm. I can't create that picture. But I can have a sense of where you're working towards. And I think that's that question that you're asking about ethical leadership. 
ethical choices. How do you make those? How do you, you might not know what the picture is going to be, but if you know where you're, where you're making a decision from, then you can at least track back. Yeah. Why did you make that decision five years ago? Well, what I was probably thinking was this. And if, you, if you're keeping things in the place close to your values, then you can account for your choices. <laughs> Absolutely. And I do. I think also when you can align yourself, you spoke a bit about collaboration earlier, like when you can get clear on what your North Stars are and where your values are set and the type of collaborators that you're looking to work with, you find them and maybe they don't work in this industry. Who knows? Maybe they're board members, maybe they're colleagues that work in IT and who knows? But like knowing that you have shared values means that there's a sittingness of openness and trust and and for me there's compassion there's integrity in particular decision making there's ultimately a wheelhouse of knowing that we can work together and whatever the outcome of that there's that sharedness and that ability for me to be vulnerable because we've done some of that hard work <laughs> i'm fascinated that you did that masters in cultural leadership because I remember seeing that when it came out as an idea and I went, what? You can't teach it? What are they? And then over the time, as people have done it and the conversations have come out of that space, mm. I found it an incredibly interesting layer in our mm. arts culture. Mm. What was it that drew you towards that thought? I think it was just being in a place where I did want to do some more education because I hadn't been at university for quite a long time and thinking, well, what what might that be? And I'd done a Churchill Fellowship maybe five years earlier where I I sort of was so lucky to, I love those fellowships where you get to go around the world and I've never done one. They're so great. (laughs) And so (laughs) I sort of travelled and um, I was investigating, particularly producing models for independent artists. And part of that was to write a dissertation at the end of that. So it was starting to dip my toe in research again. And I just wanted an opportunity to do this really, talk with colleagues about big issues, to meet peers from other parts of the sector and other parts of the world and the country and see what might be possible. And, you know, you get to look at advocacy, communication, politics, the history of leadership, all of these other things that you don't have a lot of time to to do in your everyday life. But it was nuts. Like, who thought you could do a master's and a full-time job at the same time? Who did that? <laughs> but it's a funny thing, isn't it? That question about how do you make yourself better in what you do? Yeah. When you're younger, that's it's about getting opportunities. Mm. And finding those opportunities. But there are a lot of opportunities in the Australian space. Mm. If you're w- willing to work like a demon, mm. there are lots of opportunities. And that's what friends overseas always talk about. There's so much opportunity in the early space in Australia. Mm. It's the next space of yeah. how do you make yourself significantly better? Mm. How do you do that? You do a master's on top of a full-time job. Yeah. You know, you take the position mm. leading an organization mm. and put the band-aid over your heart when your daughter says you love yeah. your job more than me and you kind of go it's okay she's going to get to about 26 and apologize for being so hard on you that because that's what I did to my mom it took about 26 though yeah I'm sorry about 23 actually 20. <laughs> but uh, if I have to wait for 26 okay yeah I'm, I'm slow in some ways yeah mom I'm really sorry about that and you go no, yeah it's fine, fine. 
Yeah. That's good. It's good to get checked by a seven-year-old. I was like, righto, here we go. Let's make a boat out of a box. <laughs> you know there's love there. Oh, there's so much love. But it is. It's you, Sometimes you do need a seven-year-old to go, could you just put that down for a second? And I also know that we need men and women with seven-year-olds to be in the space that we're in. For sure. Because I grew up in a theatre where there was none of that. And it was a less interesting place. The writing was less interesting. The people working were less interesting. It was a very, the monoculture that it was mm. shut out a lot of of cultural intelligence. Mm. And we're finally letting that in and that complexity in. And I look at, at some of the leaders, female leaders especially, who were ahead of me. I look at, you know, Gail Edwards. I look at Marion Potts. I look at you know, I mean, Mary was probably the first person I knew that had kids, mm. woman that had kids and leadership. And what structures did she have in her life to, to support that? Yeah. And then that made me just go, actually, I don't know a lot of people who let the idea of kids into their working process. Mm. It was only until I got pregnant did all of the women come out of the woodwork. I did not know a single same. Yeah. And to be fair, the best thing about these kids and bringing them into work is they're an amazing <laughs> circuit breaker. <laughs> and intergenerational, like, mm, you know. Learning. It, learning. It's, it's, it's brilliant and yeah. it makes for a better day in yeah. everyone's lives. And we have a mini trampoline up in our office. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, there's also other win-wins. I guess you, I'm a big fan of a mini tramp, I have so to say. I got, yeah, I, I got through um, uh, quarantine yeah. with a mini tramp. There's also ice creams in the freezer. So, oh, you know, there you go. Which all officers should have. And that's sort of look, look that, that's probably a good place to stop for now. I know this seems, if, for those of you that have sat with us in this conversation, this is really what I, I want these conversations to be is just a chance for you to actually hear how people talk about things when we're not trying to sell you a show <laughs> or sell you an idea. There is a complexity of thought. It doesn't necessarily have a, a good shape about it, mm. which is sometimes the difficulty with forums and things like that. We're quite, there's quite a lot of pressure in these positions to articulate a company position. But opening it up and going, there's a person that sits behind the shaping of company <laughs> Mm. Uh, and that actually the companies are not solid entities. They're just a group of people who happen to be lucky enough to have that custodial position for a period of time. And our responsibility is to leave it in a shape good enough to hand on to someone else, even if we haven't written best handover document ever. <laughs> it's kind of like, and, and no, for people going into these positions, knowing that it might just be that there isn't a document. Circumstances sometimes mean you don't get to write the document. You might just be given the keys to the building. Good luck. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Good luck. I think that would be a, a way to say to what to say to people. What's the take out of this? Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> I hope this hasn't put you off the idea of if leadership. You to, if you need to call. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what, yeah. I, what I would say is we are in the new age of accessibility, and yeah. I know that I'm uh, always happy to talk to people about about company about what it is to be in positions like this. And I know that both Joe and Zohar are because you've been that for me in this last couple of years. So thank you. Thank you. It's been a real lot of fun. Yeah. We might do this in a couple of years time and see where we are. We might do it with a drink drink in hand. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Quality Time. Please rate and review it and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at QLD Theatre. You can visit our website, queenslandtheatre.com.au, to sign up to our e-news and learn more about the stories we'll be sharing next. We can't wait to see you at the theatre again soon. Bye!